I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Confessions of a Native Son. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, a Marine Corps veteran, entrepreneur, and aspiring author who enjoys thought-provoking and engaging dialogue about race, culture, and business. Welcome to another bonus episode from season one. I hope you all enjoyed the speech by Malcolm X, the ballad of the bullet on the previous episode. You know, I'll tell you, sharing these voices with you on these on these bonus episodes is important to me because these voices are important to black culture. They've been writing and talking and fighting against a lot of the issues we're still addressing today in the post George Floyd era. I can't even call it the post George Floyd era because we're still in it. You know, when it comes to issues of race, particularly with African-Americans, you know, this is not something that we're going to solve overnight. This isn't going to be solved within the next decade. You know, this is going to be a long, drawn out fight. And I don't think people realize that. You know, I think people think it's just as simple as, oh, I'm going to do some some impact investing. And all of a sudden, you know, after, you know, five years, I expect the black community to increase their employment rates, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's missing, you know, some of the overarching points of what you're seeing me talk through and address in this show is that, you know, America has a deep issue with race, particularly the oppression and exploitation of black people. And it goes back to the roots of the founding of this country. And one of the things that, you know, I, I try to do on this platform is just give voices to black and brown people and Asian people and, you know, give voices to people that you don't hear, you don't hear from. You know, um, it's important because I think it, it gives us a, a true sense of what is this, uh, this American experience, you know, and as we, we, as leaders listen to these voices and listen to the guests that come on this platform and share with you their perspectives and their, and their truth, you know, I would like to think that this empowers us to lead with empathy and understanding instead of trying to force our understanding and solve these issues through our biases and through our lens. And so that's why it's important, you know, to start to share some of these other voices because they've been in the fight. Nothing we're facing today, unemployment, systemic racism, you know, um, this stuff is nothing new, right? And I've come in my understanding and studying history and culture and everything. I believe history is cyclical. I think it repeats itself. You know, I think, I think, how do I say this? Um, you know, things might change, right? Wardrobes and clothes, clothes and buildings, et cetera. But I think the underlying system remains the same. And, you know, I've talked about this before of like, if somebody was to come and visit our, our current time frame from like 500 years ago, and you asked them, they asked us, who are your kings and queens? I want to speak to your kings and queens. You know, who would you point them to? Probably the Jeff Bezoses of the world and the Bill Gates and all these people with power immense power, financial power, you know? And if you look through their lens, they represent the kings. And if you said, you know, show me your peons and your peasants, I feel like it would be black people, you know, because we're at the bottom of the economic totem pole in this country. And, you know, when I when I come on this platform and talk about this stuff, and even the stuff I do in my entrepreneurial endeavors is try to, to elevate us out of this. Um, but one thing I will say that in my studies, and I've gone some deep studies. You know, I've been reading tons of books during my time off away from this podcast. 
books on 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 entrepreneurship, on finance, on history, you know, really just trying to come up with strategies that we can implement to solve a lot of these issues to uplift and elevate black black and brown people in this country. And I'll tell you for African Americans, my confession is I don't believe you can solve the issues through the same lens and institutions that created them in the first place. You know, I'm not so confident in impact investing's um, ability to address the underlying issue of, you know, black inferiority in, in, in small business, you know, in education, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, that's, that's probably a very controversial topic to say, but again, it's just like you, you know, you're, you're not addressing the underlying issues. And to be quite frank, like, why would you want to solve the issues through the lenses that created them in the first place? You know, the, the exploitation of labor, you know, we talk about this and you're going to hear this on this, this debate that I'm sharing today between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley. But, you know, America, you can't argue the fact that this country was built on the backs of black and brown people for free, free labor. You know, they worked for free. Putting into this country and weren't compensated for it. And then we come out of, you know, the Civil War and we roll into reconstruction and we, we build our farms and we start to invest in the Freeman's Bank and all this kind of stuff. And then those go under due to racism and Jim Crow. And so we lost those gains. So then we transition into, you know, just cheap labor, sharecropping, working in factories. Under the the under the Jim Crow laws and the segregation laws. And you know what? We we maintained as best we could. Right. We had the black family and everybody likes to say, oh, you know, we, what what happened? At least we had the black family. And then what happens? Post-industrialism hits. Right. The factory shops close and America takes the brunt of it. And I think for us. You know, and I, I got to get a little deeper into how I talk about this, but, you know, I think a lot of the issues I see within the black community, right? I think it is the system. It's a result of the system playing itself out. I think black people in this country were already about to fall off an economic cliff, you know, but at least during industrialization, you know, we had jobs, right? During um, integration, right? We were forced to keep money within our community, support our own communities and our businesses, and then once the civil rights hit, you know, and we desegregated and industrialism, post-industrialism hit. And then you had, you know, the Vietnam War and you had, you know, racial uprising all across the country. And I just feel like it forced us off an economic cliff that we have been able to recover from. And so now this is what you're seeing play out in the turn in the form of, you know, births out of wetlock, massive unemployment, crime. And too often, I think in this country, we tie it to morality. And say, oh, you know, it was just the black culture. It's the breakdown of the black family. But you can't address the breakdown of the black family without addressing post-industrialism. You know, you can't address that without um, understanding the impact that had on the black community, on the impact of losing our teachers and our education um, as we headed into, you know, integration. You know, because when we integrated these schools, you know, our students were forced to integrate. Black students were forced to integrate. But that didn't necessarily mean a lot of these schools took the teachers and the best teachers weren't put with black students. They were pushed away from it. And so there's all these issues within a culture, you know, within American culture. When I say our culture, I'm talking about American culture that we have to come to terms with and that we have to address. Um, and this is. Um, I don't know. And I'm, I'm I'm the reason I'm studying so hard. And reading this stuff and talking about this stuff is because I don't think there's anybody else who's going to address it. 
You know, it's kind of like as you get older, you know, you think people are just going to kind of magically solve these issues and it doesn't happen. Right. Or you've come up with a great idea for like a small business incubator in Newark for the kids and the youth. And then you ask yourself, well, who am I to set this up? And then you realize nobody else is doing it. So by default, as a leader, you step up to the plate. And I feel like it's the same thing with a lot of these issues I'm seeing within, you know, the, the black community. And I'll tell you, man, I was having a, a debate with a friend of mine. Um, um, and he's, man, he's, he's great because he really pushes me to get better. And he was one that really pushed me to make this deep understanding on the stuff I'm talking about today is, you know, the, again, I think it's called the Monaghan report where it talks about the breakdown of the black family as a cause of unemployment and births out of wetlocks and all this kind of stuff. But if you look at, I think it was the 1920s, you know, when America passed prohibition, right? Why did we pass prohibition? Right. Well, we banned alcohol, the consumption of alcohol. It wasn't, you know, unemployment and all the issues that white America was suffering from. It wasn't tied to morality. It was tied to alcohol. And it, it the movement was so powerful. It got passed in Congress to allow for the banning of alcohol during the prohibition and, and what led to the prohibition era. But yet when it comes to black, black and brown people, you know, it's the breakdown of the black family. Right. Without understanding that there's something else that is forms at play, there's something else at play. And so I'm still working on articulating this thought. But essentially what I'm trying to. What I'm not trying to what I believe in my understanding is, you know, I think sometimes we see things happen. Right. And we can't always explain it. Right. But I I believe that if there were more job opportunities and more economic opportunities for black people in this country. We will lower mass incarceration. We will lower birth out of wetlocks and we will lower a lot of the other issues that we're facing. But I think because of the economics of the situation, this is what we're seeing now within the black community is causing that. And the reason the history is so important is because everything that happened in history leading up to post industrialism set us up for failure to survive once the menial labor, I mean, once the industrialism was over. And now we're dealing with the repercussions of that. And so you see the, you know, the breakdown of the black family is a byproduct of the economics, right? And I got to do a little deeper dive on that and I'm studying it. Y'all so bear with me and be patient, but that's something I believe and I just got to get better at explaining it. But one thing I want to do, and this is why, you know, I, I really like this platform is I want to share with you all a debate between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley at the Cambridge Union in 1965. And let me set the precedence for this, right? I'm set the precedence for this debate set by, uh, I think it's set precedent. Yeah, set precedent for this debate. Um, and I want to read a poem for you all by Langston Hughes. It's called I Too by Langston Hughes. I too sing America. I'm the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when the company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I, too, am America. That poem for me gets at the heart of James Baldwin's stance during this debate. And this debate topic was, has the American dream been achieved at the expense of the American Negro. And one thing I find fascinating when we talk about black experience in this country, 
the black experience in this country, we so we're so quick to discredit the perspective of black people. You know, I, I wonder sometimes to myself, I'm saying, you know, when we founded this constitution, what would the constitution look like if black people were allowed to contribute to its formation? I'm sure women probably wondered the same thing as well. You know, what was it like fighting in the Revolutionary War or was experienced Revolutionary War? What was the black perspective? You know, there's always these, you know, black people in this country, we're never the center. We're always like the outsiders. And it's like everybody else always kind of talking to us about the experience and experience of, of being a black American, of being an American and what we should expect from ourselves, et cetera. But we don't really hear it from us. And everything that is put into us is definitely from like a European centered approach. You know, and I ask these questions to myself because, you know, even for me as a social entrepreneur, how many people, if you only knew how many people told me to drop the social aspect of my business model, right? I run a free incubator here in the city for youth and young adults, teach them entrepreneurship. I run a free boxing gym, this uh, all under my nonprofit Ironbound Boxing Education. And when I came out with it, people were like, focus on making money and then do the stuff later. Then something happens like George Floyd and all of a sudden everybody's like, yo, the support is coming. It's crazy. And I've just never bought into this mentality of, you know, I just can't, I can't be extremely happy while the majority of my people are living in poverty and despair, you know? And I understand that I need to lift as I climb because I don't want to be the only one, you know, I'd rather have, you know, I don't want to be the only one that makes and leave a hundred in the graveyard. I want 30, 40 coming with me. You know, I don't want to leave anybody in the graveyard. I want us to succeed at scale. That's what I'm talking about. I don't think we can succeed at scale trying to solve a lot of the issues within the black community through the lenses and institutions that created them in the first place. We need different approaches and strategies that will allow us to achieve, to succeed at scale. And so when I talk about this, this, you know, what, what, what Baldwin's talking about of the perspective from the black American, you know, it's important because I feel like it gives us insight into unique insight into how America is truly perceived. And if you don't have self-awareness, if we don't have self-awareness as a country from the people that are experiencing American poverty, racism, discrimination, and we can't hear them and listen to them and give them a platform to speak their existence and their truth without trying to force ours on them, we'll never have the self-awareness to truly address these issues. And for, for me, when I hear Baldwin talk, that's what Baldwin gets to the core of. Baldwin is not like we, we got this big debate, you know, right now with the presidential election, everything like that. Right. Baldwin wouldn't care who was president. He's more concerned about what's the soil of America. What's the soil of America say about who we elect president? It's bigger than just one individual. Right. It's the institution. It's, it's the culture. It's everything that allows, you know, those we put in power, whether good or bad. Right. And we got to look at the underlying issue. And I think when he talks about has the dream been achieved at the expense of the American Negro, in my opinion, absolutely. Absolutely. You can't even just from an economic perspective, I don't think you can discredit the amount of blood, sweat and tears we put in in this country to help build this country and not receive any compensation for it, any financial compensation for it. 
You know, and there's this big debate about, you know, reparations and, and blah, 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 right? But you got to honestly ask yourself, was, is there a debt owed? Now, I'm not holding my breath waiting on the federal government to compensate black people for years of exploited labor. Um, but honestly, you got to ask yourself sometimes, like, is there a debt owed? And when you look at the banking industry in this country, what, it's, it's, it's criminal what they've done to black money in this country, in the banking industry. It's criminal, you know? And so there's a lot of just underlying issues. And, you know, one of the things I like, and I'm sharing this debate with you is because, you know, one thing Baldwin does, he address, and, and if you don't know who James Baldwin is, you know, he's a, he's a famed African-American writer. And his reputation as a progressive social critic and visionary civil rights activist has only risen in the intervening decades. Argues, and he argues that the very foundation of U.S. society is built on the dehumanization of its African-American population. This is what he believes, you know, and I've said, I've said on the George Floyd era, I still believe, you know, there's this sense of, of black inferiority. I, I truly do. And I think one of the reasons that's why there's such an emphasis in trying to, you know, be so colorblind. And I'm not discrediting a lot of people out there that are, you know, believe in being colorblind, colorblind in America. But again, for me, I want you to see my color because I want you to see me. I just want you to accept it. That's the difference, you know? Um, and he debates, you know, William F. Buckley, who was obvious, he's arguably one of the leaders of the conservative movement that is today, the intellectual conservative movement that is today, right? He's a Yale guy, was writing conservative articles. I mean, comes from affluence, right? But he is like the pinnacle of like, he was like the modern day, he was like the old time, like Fox News back when it was probably real. I don't know when people actually had civil discourse. And so what you're going to hear in this debate is you're going to hear Baldwin arguing with Buckley about whether or not the American dream is at the expense, has been at the expense of the American Negro. And full transparency, right? I'm not the biggest fan of Buckley. However, with that said, I watch a ton of his videos on YouTube. He had a show called Firing Line with William F. Buckley. And one of the things I appreciate about his show was that he shared his platform with Pretty much everybody, every controversial black leader, Muhammad Ali, Huey Newton, Eldridge Cleaver. I mean, you name it. He had on his platform to have engaged in civil discourse with them. Now, do I believe his reasoning was that he believed he was intellectually superior? Probably. Right. I do believe that. And I read another book on him and Buckley um, called The Fires Upon Us. And it talks about a lot of this this you know, superiority he felt about a white elite should basically rule America. And so it comes out in a lot of his demeanor and how he talks and how he writes. But at the end of the day, I still appreciate good civil discourse. And that's what I feel like you get when you hear these two debate, James Baldwin and William F. Buckley. So now that was a little bit of a longer intro that I like to do for these bonus episodes. But again, just sharing with you, you know, some perspectives and give you a little bit of a deeper dive as uh, as you start to enjoy this content and just want to remind you that, you know, that I'm releasing season two of this show starting on January 7th, 2021. So be sure to save the date. Don't forget about us. Don't ghost us. And also in the meantime, I'll tell you, I created a website for this podcast, confessionsofanativeson.com. Head over there and sign up for our newsletter to get updates for when we do release the show. And I'm going to get some blog posts going. So just be patient with me. But I, I thought it was really important because you know, um, 
I just want to, I want to share these perspectives. I want to get the word out. I really want to build a strong platform. And so, um, yeah, stay on, stay tuned for us on January 7th and head over to confessions of a native son.com without further ado, I proudly present to you James Baldwin and William F. Buckley's 1965 debate at the Cambridge Union. It is now with very great pleasure and a very great sense of honor that I call Mr. James Baldwin to speak third to this motion. Now we have Mr. James Baldwin, the star of the evening, who has been sitting, listening attentively, getting a wonderful reception here in the Cambridge Union. Tremendous enthusiasm from all sides of the house for Mr. Baldwin, who has been listening to the arguments. Now we'll bring the voice of actual experience to the debate. Good evening. <laughs> I, um, I find myself, not for the first time, in um, the position of a kind of Jeremiah. For example, I don't disagree with Mr. Burford that the... Um, the inequality suffered by the American Negro population of the United States has hindered the American dream. Indeed it has. I quarrel with some other things he has to say. The other deeper element of a certain awkwardness I feel has to do with, um, it has to do with one's point of view, I have to put it that way, one's, uh, one's sense of one's system of reality. It would seem to me that the proposition before the House, when I put it that way, is the American dream at the expense of the American Negro, all the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro, is a question hideously loaded, and that one's response to that question, or one's reaction to that question, has to depend on effect, an effect on where you find yourself in the world, what your sense of reality is, what your system of reality is. That is, it depends on assumptions which we hold so deeply as to be scarcely aware of them. A white South African or a Mississippi sharecropper or a Mississippi sheriff or a Frenchman driven out of Algeria all have at bottom a system of reality which compels them to, for example, in the case of the French exile from Algeria, to defend French reasons for having ruled Algeria. The Mississippi or the Alabama sheriff, who really does believe when he's facing a Negro boy or girl, that this woman, this man, this child, must be insane to attack the system to which he owes his entire identity. Of course, for such a person, the proposition of which, which we're trying to discuss here tonight does not exist. And on the other hand, I have to speak as one of the people who've been most attacked by what we must now here call the Western or the European system of reality. What white people in the world, the white doctrine of white supremacy, I hate to say it here, comes from Europe. That's how it got to America. Beneath then, whatever one's reaction to this proposition is, has to be the question or whether or not civilizations can be considered as such 
equal or whether one civilization has the right to overtake and subjugate and in fact to destroy another. Now what happens when that happens? Leaving aside all the physical facts that one can quote, leaving aside rape or murder, leaving aside the bloody catalog of oppression, which we are in one way too familiar with already, what this does to the subjugated, the most private, the most serious thing this does to the subjugated, is to destroy his sense of reality. It destroys, for example, his, uh, his father's authority over him. His father can no longer tell him anything because the past has disappeared. And his father has no power in the world. This means, in the case of an American Negro, born in that glittering republic, and in the moment you are born, since you don't know any better, every stick and stone and every face is white, and since you have not yet seen a mirror, you suppose that you are too. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover the flag to which you have pledged allegiance <laughs> along with everybody else has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. It comes as a great shock to discover that the country, which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity, has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. <laughs> the disaffection, the demoralization, and the gap between one person and another, only on the basis of the color of their skins, begins there and accelerates accelerates throughout a whole lifetime so that presently you realize you're 30 and are having a terrible time managing to trust your countrymen. By the time you are 30, you have been through a certain kind of mill. And the most serious effect of the mill you've been through is again not the catalog of disaster, the policemen, the taxi drivers, the waiters, the landlady, the landlord, the banks, the insurance companies, the millions of details, 24 hours of every day, which spell out to you that you are a worthless human being. It is not that. It's by that time you've begun to see it happening in your daughter or your son or your niece or your nephew. You are 30 by now and nothing you have done has helped you to escape the trap. But what is worse than that is that nothing you have done, and as far as you can tell, nothing you can do, will save your son or your daughter from meeting the same disaster and not impossibly coming to the same end. Now, we're speaking about expense. I suppose there are several ways to address oneself to some attempt to define what that word means here. Let me put it this way, that from a very literal point of view, the harbors and the ports and the railroads of the country, the economy 
especially of the southern states, could not conceivably be what it has become if they had not had and do not still have indeed and for so long, so many generations, cheap labor. I am stating very seriously, and this is not an overstatement, that I picked the cotton and I carried it to market and I built the railroad under someone else's whip for nothing, for nothing. The Southern oligarchy, which has until today so much power in Washington and therefore some power in the world, was created by my labor and my sweat and the violation of my women and the murder of my children. This, in the land of the free, and the home of the brave. And no one can challenge that statement. It is a matter of historical record. In another way, this dream, and we'll get to the dream in a moment, is at the expense of the American Negro. You watch this in the Deep South in great relief, but not only in the Deep South. In the Deep South, you are dealing with a sheriff or a landlord or a landlady or the girl at the Western Union desk. And she doesn't know quite who she's dealing with, by which I mean that if you're not part of the town and if you are a northern nigger, it shows in millions of ways. So she simply knows that it's an unknown quantity and she wants to have nothing to do with it, but she won't talk to you. You have to wait for a while to get your telegram. Okay, we all know this. We've been through it. And by the time you get to be a man, it's very easy to deal with. But what is happening in the poor woman, the poor man's mind, is this. They've been raised to believe, and by now they helplessly believe, that no matter how terrible their lives may be, and their lives have been quite terrible, and no matter how far they fall, no matter what disaster overtakes them, they have one enormous knowledge and consolation, which is like a heavenly revelation. At least they are not black. <laughs> now, I suggest that of all the terrible things that can happen to a human being, that is one of the worst. I suggest that what has happened to white Southerners is in some ways, after all, much worse than what has happened to, what, to, to Negroes there. Because Sheriff Clark in Selma, Alabama cannot be considered, you know, no one is, can be dismissed as a total monster. I'm sure he loves his wife, his children. I'm sure that, <laughs> no, he likes to get drunk. You know, he's, after all, one's got to assume, and he is visibly a man like me. But he doesn't know what drives him to use the club, to menace with the gun, and to use the cattle prod. Something awful must have happened to a human being to be able to put a cattle prod against a woman's breast, for example, 
What happens to the woman is gaslit. What happens to the man who does it is in some ways much, much worse. This is being done, after all, not a hundred years ago, but in 1965, in a country which is blessed with what we call prosperity, a word we won't examine too closely, with a certain kind of social coherence, which calls itself a civilized nation and which espouses the notion of the freedom of the world. And it is perfectly true from the point of view now simply of an American Negro. Any American Negro watching this, no matter where he is, from the vantage point of Harlem, which is another terrible place, has to say to himself, in spite of what the government says, the government says we can't do anything about it. But those are white people being murdered in Mississippi work farms, being carried off to jail. Those are white children running up and down the streets. The government would find some way of doing something about it. We have a civil rights bill now. We had an amendment, the 15th Amendment, nearly 100 years ago. I hate to sound again like an Old Testament prophet, but if the amendment was not honored then, I don't have any reason for believing the civil rights bill will be honored now. And after all, one's been there since before, you know, a lot of other people got there. If one has got to prove one's title to the land, isn't 400 years enough? 400 years, at least three wars. The American soil is full of the corpses of my ancestors. Why is my freedom or my citizenship or my right to live there, how is it conceivably a question now? And I suggest further that in the same way, the moral life of Alabama sheriffs and poor Alabama ladies, white ladies, if their moral lives have been destroyed by the plague called color, <coughs> that the American sense of reality has been corrupted by it. At the risk of sounding excessive, what I always felt when I finally left the country, found myself abroad in other places, and watched Americans abroad, and these are my countrymen. And I do care about them. And even if I didn't, there is something between us. We have the same shorthand. I know. When I look at a girl or a boy from Tennessee, where they came from in Tennessee, and what that means. No Englishman knows that. No Frenchman. No one in the world knows that except another black man who comes from the same place. One watches these lonely people denying the only kin they have. We talk about integration in America as though it were some great new conundrum. The problem in America is that we've been integrated for a very long time. Put me next to any African, and you will see what I mean. And my grandmother was not a rapist. What we are not facing is the results of what we've done. What one begs the American people to do for all our sakes is simply to accept our history. I was there not only as a slave, but also as a concubine. One knows the power, after all, which can be used against another person if you've got absolute power over that person. It seemed to me when I watched Americans in Europe that what they didn't know about Europeans was what they didn't know about me.
They weren't trying, for example, to be nasty to the French girl or rude to the French waiter. They didn't know they hurt their feelings. They didn't have any sense of this particular woman, this particular man, though they spoke another language and had different manners and ways, was a human being. And they walked over them with the same kind of bland ignorance, condescension, charming and cheerful, with which they'd always patted me on the head and called me shy and were upset when I was upset. What is relevant about this is that whereas 40 years ago when I was born, the question of having to deal with what is unspoken by the subjugated, what is never said to the master, however, having to deal with this reality was a very remote, very remote possibility. It was in no one's mind. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I. That I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those were the only books there were. Everyone else seemed to agree. If you walk out of Harlem, ride out of Harlem, downtown, the world agrees. What you see is much bigger, cleaner, whiter, richer, safer than where you are. They collect the garbage. People obviously can pay their life insurance. The children look happy, safe. You're not. And you go back home. And it would seem then, of course, that it's an act of God, that this is true. That you belong where white people have put you. It is only since the Second World War that there's been a counter-image in the world. And that image not come about through any legislation on the part of any American government, but through the fact that Africa was suddenly on the stage of the world and Africans had to be dealt with in a way they'd never been dealt with before. This gave an American Negro, for the first time, a sense of himself beyond a savage or a clown. It has created, and will create, a great many conundrums. One of the great things that the white world does not know, but I think I do know, is that black people are just like everybody else. One has used the myth of Negro and the myth of color to pretend and to assume that you are dealing essentially with something exotic, bizarre, and practically according to human laws unknown. Alas, that is not true. We are also mercenaries, dictators, murderers, liars. We are human too. What is crucial here is that unless we can manage to establish some kind of dialogue between those people whom I pretend have paid for the American dream and those other people who have not achieved it, we will be in terrible trouble. I want to say at the end, the last, is that that is what concerns me most. We are sitting in this room and we are all, at least we like to think we are, relatively civilized, 
and we can talk to each other at least on certain levels. So that we could walk out of here assuming that the measure of our enlightenment or at least our politeness has some effect on the world. It may not. I remember, for example, when the ex-attorney general, Mr. Robert Kennedy, said that it was conceivable that in 40 years in America, we might have a Negro president. And that sounded like a very emancipated statement, I suppose, to white people. They were not in Harlem when this statement was first heard and did not hear and possibly will never hear the laughter and the bitterness and the scorn in which the statement was greeted. From the point of view of the man in the Harlem barbershop, Bobby Kennedy only got here yesterday. And now he's already on his way to the presidency. We've been here for 400 years, and now he tells us that maybe in 40 years, if you're good, we may let you become president. What is dangerous here is the turning away from, the turning away from anything any white American says. The reason for the political hesitation and in spite of the Johnson landslide is the one that's been betrayed by American politicians for so long. And I am I'm a grown man, and perhaps I can be reasoned with. I certainly hope I can be. But I don't know and neither does Martin Luther King. None of us know how to deal with those other people whom the white world has so long ignored who don't believe anything the white world says and don't entirely believe anything I or Martin say. And one can't blame them. You watch what has happened to them in less than 20 years. It seems to me that the city of New York, for example, this is my last point, which had Negroes in it for a very long time. If the city of New York were able, as it has indeed been able, in the last 15 years to reconstruct itself, tear down buildings and raise great new ones, downtown and for money, and has done nothing whatever except build housing projects in the ghetto for the Negroes. And of course, the Negroes hate it. Presently, the property does indeed deteriorate because the children cannot bear it. They want to get out of the ghetto. If the American pretensions were based on more solid, a more honest assessment of life and of themselves, it would not mean for Negroes, when someone says urban renewal, that Negroes simply are going to be thrown out into the streets, which is what it does mean now. This is not an act of God. We're dealing with a society made and ruled by men. If the American Negro had not been present in America, I am convinced that the history of the American labor movement would be much more edifying than it is. It is a terrible thing for an entire people to surrender to the notion that one-ninth of its population is beneath them. And until that moment, until the moment comes when we, the Americans, we, the American people, are able to accept the fact that I have to accept, for example, that my ancestors are both white and black, that on that continent we are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other, 
and that I am not a ward of America. I am not an object of missionary charity. I am one of the people who built the country. Until this moment, there is scarcely any hope for the American dream because the people who are denied participation in it by their very presence will wreck it. And if that happens, it's a very grave moment for the West. Thank you. Tremendously moving moment now. The whole of the Union standing and applauding this magnificent speech of James Baldwin. Never seen this happen before in the Union in all the years uh, that I have known it. Baldwin smiling, obviously delighted by his reception, tremendously moved by it. I am now very grateful and very pleased to be able to call on Mr. William F. Buckley, Jr. to speak forth to this motion. Now we have Mr. William Buckley, who will need all his skill to establish a sentence here over his audience, which has clearly been so deeply moved you, Mr. by the eloquence and personal experience of the preceding speaker. Take our preferred gentleman. <clears throat> It seems to me that of all the indictments Mr. Baldwin has made of America, here tonight and in his copious literature protest, the one that is most striking involves, in effect, the refusal of the American community but to treat him other than as a Negro. The American community has refused to do this. The American community, almost everywhere he goes, uh, treats him with the kind of unction, uh, the kind of satisfaction uh, at posturing carefully for his flagellations of our civilization that indeed, uh, quite properly, uh, commands the contempt which he so eloquently showers upon us. Uh, it is impossible in my judgment uh, to deal with the indictment of Mr. Baldwin unless one is prepared to deal with him as a white man. Unless one is prepared to say to him, the fact that your skin is black is utterly irrelevant to the arguments that you raise. Uh, the fact uh, that uh, you sit here as is your rhetorical device uh, and lay the entire weight of the Negro ordeal on your own shoulders uh, is irrelevant to the argument that we are here to discuss. The Bravaman 
of Mr. Baldwin's charges against America are not so much that our civilization has failed him and his people, that our ideals are insufficient, but that we have no ideals, that our ideals rather are some sort of a superficial coating uh, which we come up with at any given moment in order to justify uh, whatever commercial and noxious experiment we are engaged in. Uh, thus, uh, Mr. Baldwin can write his book, The Fire Next Time, uh, in which he threatens America. Uh, he didn't, in writing that book, speak with the British accents that he used exclusively tonight, uh, in which he threatened America with the necessity uh, for us to uh, jettison... Uh, for us to jettison our entire civilization, the only thing that the white man has that the Negro should want, he said, is power. Uh, and he is treated from coast to coast in the United States uh, with a kind of goes beyond anything that was ever expected from the most, most servile Negro creature by a southern family. I propose to pay him the honor this night of saying to him, Mr. Baldwin, I am going to speak to you without any reference whatever uh, to those uh, surrounding protections which you are used to in virtue of the fact that you are a Negro. And here we need to ask the question, what in fact shall we do about it, Mr. President? What shall we uh, in America try to do, for instance, uh, to eliminate those psychic humiliations, which I join Mr. Baldwin in believing are the very worst aspects of this discrimination. Uh, you found it uh, a source of considerable mirth to laugh away the statistics of my colleague, Mr. Burford. I don't think they are insignificant. Uh, they are certainly not insignificant uh, in a world which attaches a considerable importance uh, to material progress. Uh, it, it is, in fact, the case. Uh, that seven-tenths, uh, that seven-tenths of the white income of the United States uh, is uh, equal to the income that is made by the, uh, by the average Negro. I don't think this is an irrelevant statistic, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it takes a capitalization of fifteen, sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars $17,000 per job in the United States. This is a capitalization that was not created uh, exclusively as a result of Negro travail. My great-grandparents worked too. Presumably yours worked also. I don't know of anything that has ever been created without the expense of something. All of you who hope for a diploma here are going to do that at the expense of a considerable amount of effort. And I would thank you, uh, please, not to belie uh, the fact that a considerable amount of effort uh, went into the production of a system which grants a greater degree of material well-being to the American Negro than that that is enjoyed by 95% of the other peoples of the human race. But even so, uh, to the extent that your withering laughter are suggested here that you found this a contemptible observation. I agree. I don't think it matters that there are 35 millionaires among the Negro community. If there were 35, if there were 20 million uh, millionaires among the Negro community of the United States, I would still agree with you that we have a dastardly situation. But I'm asking you not, uh, not to make politics as the crow flies, to use the fleeted phrase of Professor Oakshaw but rather to consider what, in fact, is it that we Americans ought to do? What are your instructions that I'm to take back to the United States, my friend? <laughs> uh, I want to know what it is that we should do. 
And especially I want to know uh, whether it is time, in fact, to abandon the American dream as it has been defined by Mr. Haycock, Mr. Burford. Uh, what, in fact, is it that we ought to do, for instance, uh, to avoid due humiliations uh, mentioned by Mr. Baldwin uh, as, ha as being a part of his own uh, experience during his lifetime? Uh, at the age of 12, you will find on reading his book, uh, he trespassed outside the ghetto of Harlem uh, and was, was taken by the scruff of the neck by a policeman uh, on 42nd Street and Madison Avenue and said, here you nigger, go back to where you belong. Uh, 15, 20 years later, uh, he goes in and asks for a scotch whiskey at the airport at Chicago uh, and is told by the white barman that he is obviously underage and under the circumstances cannot be served. I know, I know from your faces that you share with me the feeling of compassion and the feeling of outrage that this kind of thing should have happened. What, in fact, are we going to do to this policeman? And what, in fact, are we going to do uh, to, uh, uh, to this barman? How are we going to avoid the kind of humiliations that are perpetually visited on members of a minority race? Obviously, the first element is concern. We've got to care that it happens. We have got to do what we can to change the warp and woof of moral, moral thought in society in such fashion as to try to make it happen less and less. Let me urge this point to you, which I can do with authority, my friends, the only thing that I can tonight. And that is to tell you uh, that in the United States, there is a concern for the Negro problem. Now, if you get up to me and say, <laughs> uh, if you get up to me and say, well, now, is there the kind of concern that we students of Cambridge would show if the problem were our own? Uh, all I can say is I don't know. It may very well be uh, that there has been some sort of a sunburst of moral enlightenment that has hit this community, uh, so as to make it predictable that if you were the governors of the United States, the situation would change overnight. I'm prepared to grant this as a, a form of courtesy, Mr. President. Uh, uh, but meanwhile, uh, I'm saying to you that the engines of concern in the United States are working. The presence of Mr. Baldwin here tonight is in Heart, a reflection of that concern. You cannot go. You cannot go to a university in the United States. A university in the United States, presumably also governed by the Lord Spiritual, as you are, in which Mr. Baldwin is not the toast of the town. Uh, you cannot go to a university of the United States in which practically all other problems of public policy are preempted by the primary policy of concern uh, for the Negro. I challenge you to name me another civilization anytime, anywhere in the history of the world in which the problems of a minority which have been showing considerable material and political advancement is as much a subject of dramatic concern as it is in the United States. Well, let, me, let me just say finally, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this. Uh, there is no instant cure for the race problem in America. And anybody who tells you that there is, is a charlatan and ultimately a boring man. A boring precisely uh, because he is then speaking in the kind of abstractions that do not relate to the human experience. 
The trouble in America where the Negro community is concerned is a very complicated one. Uh, I urge those of you who have, uh, a, a, who have uh, an actual rather than a purely ideologized interest in the problem uh, to read the book Beyond the Melting Pot by Professor Glazer, also co-author of The Lonely Crowd, a prominent Jewish uh, intellectual, who points to the fact uh, that the situation uh, in America where the Negroes are concerned is extremely complex as a result of an unfortunate conjunction of two factors. One uh, is the dreadful efforts to perpetuate discrimination by many individual American citizens as a result of their lack of that final and ultimate concern which some people are truly trying to agitate the other. Uh, is as a result of the failure of the Negro community itself to make certain exertions uh, which were made by other minority groups during the American experience. If you can stand a statistic not of my own making, let me give you one which Professor Glazer considers as relevant. Uh, he says, for instance, in 1900, there were 3,500 Negro doctors in America in 1960, there were 3,900, an increase in 400. Is this because there were no opportunities, as has been suggested by Mr. Haycock and also by Mr. Baldwin implicitly? No, says Professor Glazer. Uh, there are a great many medical schools uh, who are, are by no means practice discrimination, who are anxious to receive and to train uh, Negro doctors. There are scholarships available to put them through. But in fact, that particular energy, uh, which he remarks was so noticeable in the Jewish community and to a certain and lesser extent in the Italian-Irish community, for some reason is not there. We should focus on the necessity to animate this particular energy but he comes to the conclusion, which strikes me as plausible, that the people who can best do it, who can do it most effectively, are Negroes themselves. Let me uh, conclude by reminding you, ladies and gentlemen, that where uh, the Negro is concerned, the dangers, as far as I can see at this moment, is that they will seek to reach out for some sort of radical solutions on the basis of which the true problem uh, is obscured. They have done a great deal but to focus on the fact of white discrimination uh, against the Negroes. They have great, done a great deal to agitate a moral concern, but where, in fact, do they go now? They seem to be slipping, if you will read carefully, for instance, the words of Mr. Bayard Rustin, towards some sort of a Procrustean formulation which ends up less urging the advancement of the Negro than the regression of the white people. Fourteen times as many people in New York City born of Negroes are illegitimate as of whites. This is a problem. How shall we address it? Uh, by seeking out laws that encourage illegitimacy in white people? Uh, this, unfortunately, tends to be the rhetorical momentum that some of their arguments are taking. One thing you might do, Mr. Buckley, is let them vote Mississippi. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more, and for, except lest I appear too ingratiating, which is hardly my objective here tonight. I think actually, I think actually, what is wrong in Mississippi, sir, is not that not enough Negroes are voting, but that too many white people are, are, are voting. <laughs> Booker T. Washington said, 
Booker T. Washington said that the important thing where Negroes are concerned is, is, is not that they hold public office, but that they be prepared to hold public office. Not that they vote, but that they be prepared to vote. What are we going to do with the Negroes? Having taught the Negroes in Mississippi to despise Barnett, uh, Rose Barnett, shall we then teach them to emulate their cousins in Harlem and adore Adam Clayton Powell, Jr.? Uh, it is much more complicated, sir, than simply the question of giving them the vote. Uh, if I were myself a constituent of the community of Mississippi at this moment, what I would do is vote to lift the standards uh, of the vote so as to disqualify 65% uh, of the white people who are presently voting. Uh, not, not, simply, not simply to give the... <clears throat> uh, I say then that what we need uh, is a considerable amount of frankness uh, that acknowledges that there are two sets of difficulties... Uh, the difficulties of the white person who acts as white people and brown people and black people uh, do all over the world uh, to protect their own vested interests, uh, who have, as all of the races in the entire world have, uh, and suffer from a kind of a racial narcissism uh, which, to it, which tends always to convert every contingency into such a way as to maximize their own power. That, yes, we must do. Uh, but we must also reach through to the Negro people and tell them that their best chances are in a mobile society. Uh, and the most mobile society in the world today, my friends, uh, is the United States of America. Uh, the most mobile society in the United States uh, in the world is the United States of America, and it is precisely that mobility uh, which will give opportunities to the Negroes which they must be encouraged to take. But they must not, in the course of their ordeal, be encouraged to adopt the kind of cynicism, uh, the kind of despair, uh, the kind of iconoclasm that is urged upon them by Mr. Baldwin uh, in his recent works. Because of one thing, uh, I can tell you, I believe with absolute authority that where the United States is concerned, if it ever becomes a confrontation uh, between a continuation uh, of our, our own sort of idealism, uh, the private stock of which, granted, like most people in the world, we tend to lavish only every now and then on public enterprises, reserving it so often for our own irritations and pleasures. But the fundamental friend uh, of the Negro people uh, in the United States is the good nature uh, and is the generosity and is the good wishes, is the decency, the fundamental decency that do lie at the reserves of the spirit uh, of the American people. These must not be laughed at. And under no circumstances must they be laughed at. And under, under no circumstances must America be addressed uh, and told that the only alternative to the status quo uh, is to overthrow uh, that civilization which we consider to be the faith of our fathers, or the faith indeed of, of your fathers. This is what must animate whatever meliorism must come, because if it does finally come to a confrontation, a radical confrontation between giving up what we understand to be the best features of the American way of life, which at that level is indistinguishable, so far as I can see, from the European way of life, then we will fight the issue. Uh, and we will fight the issue not only in the Cambridge Union, uh, but we will fight it as you were once recently called to do on beaches and on hills and on mountains and on landing grounds. And we will be convinced that just as you uh, won the war against a particular threat to civilization, 
you were nevertheless waging a war in favor of and for the benefit of Germans, your own enemies, just as we are convinced that if it should ever come to that kind of a confrontation, our own determination to win the struggle will be a determination to wage a war not only for whites, but also for Negroes. Will the tellers take their places, please? They're voted in favor of the motion, the motion being that the American dream is at the expense of the Negro. They voted in favor of that motion 544 persons and against 164 persons. The motion is therefore carried by 380 votes. I declare the House to stand adjourned. Feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our dreams, black man, and get that.